So I want to welcome everybody that come from Chitrust and Devon and the lay people that have come to support the Sangha during this uh, uh, Sangha retreat. <clears throat> and during this winter's retreat, even though I've only been here since uh, February, uh, it's been well supported. Lay people that have come in to help so that we have this glorious opportunity to uh, practice uh, and looking at our jits, at our minds. And so if there's anything I want to get across uh, after all these years, and on the, especially on this retreat, is this uh, Opanayaka Dhamma looking inwards. Uh, you begin to look inwards, what's going on in your mind, rather than, than endlessly looking outwards. So the, this sense of uh, looking outward is the worldly dhamma, where we're, which arouses uh, greed, uh, anger, hatred, jealousy, fear, and all the rest. Because the realm we live in is like this. It's a dangerous realm. It's uh, all about birth and death and change. It's interesting now is that Elections like in the United States uh, last year was Obama, and then now you hear the uh, coming election here in the UK, and and they're talking all about change as their what we want change. Well, whether they want it or don't want it, that's what's happening all the time. <laughs> and so it's uh, it's rather silly. Politics is a bit stupid anyway. But um, in this retreat, we're actually, you know, observing change in this way because they, especially the, like the ordained Sangha, is, uh, you know, you made a strong commitment for liberation. And it's, uh, it's a mendicant form, so it, it is about relinquishing letting go and um, simplification uh, and and to and then this practice the practice of meditation is this direction of looking at what's going on in your mind because that's the only thing you can know in the present moment it's like this you know you have views and opinions about the world and and uh, memories but what you can actually know at this very moment, when at this 
very time and place, here and now, is the way you're feeling. It's like this. And of course, each one of us might have different feelings at this moment. So, you know, we never feel exactly the same at the same moment. So, some of you feel happy, sad, interested, bored, inspired, uh, depressed, or whatever. But whatever, you know, the, the emphasis is not on trying to create a perfect mental state, which is impossible anyway, but to be the observer of whatever mental state, emotional state, the, the material state too, the, the body you have at this moment is like this. So this is the practice of the path of liberation. So we all have this common goal here. The common goal is, I hope, the same for all of us. But anyway, what I suggest your goal should be is liberation. <clears throat> From ignorance, suffering, delusion, birth and death, the whole lot. Now, on a personal level, we might we we might feel that we can't do it, or that it's that you don't even understand what I'm saying, or whatever. But whatever you're feeling, whatever way you're reacting to what I'm saying at this moment, is the way it is. So it's learning to trust in this to get a real sense of this awareness. Uh, and being the observer rather than the owner of the feeling, the emotion, the view, the opinion uh, that you might be experiencing at this time in your jitta. So this is, you know, when we uh, take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, this is the paradigm, this is the pattern, isn't it? Buddha is mindfulness aware of condition phenomena changing and being able to discern change uh, from that which is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Now this is, uh, in the human state we're in, having a human body means that we have this uh, ability. This is what teaching of the Buddha is all about. This is what a Buddha is, in other words, is a knower of the world, not a one who is uh, caught in the illusions of the world. And the world, then, is what's going on in your mind, whatever state that might be. That's, that's the world that we're talking about. Your feeling, your views, opinions, memories, your identity with your physical uh, bodies and appearance, cultural conditioning, uh, you know, whatever, all the conditioning that we receive in this state of being born as a human being on planet Earth. And that which is aware of that is the unborn, uncreated. So it's like, <clears throat> this is when we talk about 
Ujupatipano, it's not direct, it's being this. Being the knowing, being that which is aware of the world, not the world. When we aren't aware, then we become the world. And it's a state of becoming. We're always being caught up in our loves and hates and feelings and opinions and views and prejudices and biases, fears and worries. And, and when we, when we can't let go of that, when we're caught in the trap, then of course there's, it's the, like the endless cycles of birth and death. We're caught in this vortex, this whirling vortex of, uh, these changing conditions, birth and death, one after another. It's the, like a whirling vortex of change. And so we're caught in this vortex, whirled around, and then wonder why, uh, why we have to suffer. We want to change the vortex, or make it less severe, or lighten it up a bit, or trying to, to even get rid of it doesn't work. The only way one can really resolve this problem is through awareness, mindfulness, and through knowing, discerning it, as anicca dukkanata, impermanent, that's the most obvious characteristic, isn't it? Impermanence, anicca, dukkha, unsatisfactory, and anatta, non-self. So we can't help how we feel in the present moment. We can't decide I'm going to feel good right now and really be able to do that. <clears throat> uh, so, but we can be aware of whatever we're feeling, whatever state of clarity or confusion, happiness, misery, whatever. It's, it's like this. So, Developing the path, cultivating the path of liberation is our ability, human ability, to observe. That's what Buddha Dhamma Sangha is all about. It's not about personality, it's not about uh, culture, uh, good and bad, right or wrong. It's not about, you know, one thing's better than another. But it's about recognizing, knowing the world as the world, discerning it, and not not being deluded by it anymore. Now it's very interesting when you think of, you know, this realm that we're actually living in as human in this human form, because it's a sense realm. So we're we're bound into this sensitive form as a to from birth to death. And this this planet Earth, this realm with its seasons, with its heat and cold, its pleasure and pain, its hunger and thirst, and old age, sickness, death, loss of the love. These are all part of every human experience. You know, from a lifetime, from birth to death, these changing conditions, the weather, the season, uh, the the society, the state, uh, you know, your your uh, cultural attitudes, uh, your parents, uh, 
the wind, the rain, hot summers, cold winters, or whatever, affect us. And we have to experience the, the extremes of the conditioned realm of beauty and ugliness. And that's this realm that we're, we're, we're born into as, as a human individual. And so then it does seem, you know, from the personal perspective, from the personality, it just seems like a whole, hopeless task, really, because when we're only identified, when we can't discern the difference between the personal and the impersonal, when we're caught in the personal, then it, it endlessly goes on. We, we lose all perspective because our feelings, our biases, our prejudices, our opinions, views take precedence over everything else. And so that's why the world is the way it is, why we have wars and conflict and misunderstandings and so forth, quarrels and envies and jealousies and murders and whatnot because of this ignorance. Now the, the message of the Buddha is to awaken, not to make the world better, trying to improve the world, but to know the world. Know the world as the world because the world has its karma. You know, we can't, you know, we can't force things to do what we want to make them the way we would like them to be. But we can observe them. And so this sape, sankarani, all conditions are impermanent. This is a, as you know, uh, I've been saying this uh, for some of you for 25, 30 years now, you've been hearing me saying, Sapay Sangharani Cha. Well, that's a good reflection because it, it is the truth and it reminds us that, that it is. That's a Sankharas, conditions, phenomena, all phenomena, all that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think. The planet itself that we live in, live on, everything is sankhara. So sankhara is the Pali word for like conditions. So conditions have forms, shapes, colors, sizes, some are better, worse, good, bad, right, wrong, big and small. That's the nature of, of conditions. But unconditioned, no form, it's like nothing, isn't it? it? You know, you can't imagine the unconditioned, uh, you can't paint a picture of it, uh, it has no color, no form. So it's easily uh, kind of overlooked, dismissed, not recognized, because then what's the point, you know? The, the world of form and conditions with all their temptations, their, their allures, all their ugliness and pain, misery. It's so powerful on us, you know, that we, we just caught in emotional reactions to the eight worldly dhammas. And so we're kind of helpless victims of fate, in other words. 
Because that's what we are when we're ignorant of Dhamma, when we can't discern the, 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 the condition from the unconditioned, then we are caught in this vortex, a whirling vortex. I remember when I, before I started meditating, when I was still a layman, I had, I just felt this uh, kind of hopelessness because I, I was caught in this vortex and it just, there seemed to be no way out. I was about 31 at the time, lived long enough to experience enough life. And then, but then, you know, it just seemed like the life had no meaning, no purpose. Uh, it seemed empty and silly and foolish as I perceived it, you know, uh, at that time. And then being kind of stuck into it, caught into this, this changing, whirling vortex of samsara and not knowing how to, what to do about it. And then, of course, uh, what brought me into the monastic form was uh, I, di I did have this, let's say, the light at the end of the tunnel was Buddhism. I did have this tremendous interest and longing to investigate the teachings of the Buddha. And, of course, I was at the time living in Malaysia, and then, of course, Malaysia is right next to Thailand, so Thailand was the obvious place to go, Buddhist country. And going there, 1966, I, uh, very beginning of 1966, remember I spent New Year's Eve in Penang and then, <laughs> and then uh, took the train to Bangkok. <clears throat> and then they, I, was, I only knew one place and I knew nothing really about Thailand, but this hippie traveler that I met when I lived in Sabah uh, gave me an address of uh, Wat Mahathat, which is one of the big temples in Bangkok uh, and uh, where they teach meditation. So uh, as soon as I got myself a room to stay in, I went to Wat Mahathat and started practicing meditation. So that's what, that one kind of light interest, you know, I've been fortunate really. I look back at my life, and I think how fortunate I've been, when at one time, before I started all this, I felt very unfortunate. You know, anybody else around me seemed to be having so much fun and enjoying life, and I wasn't. Now, of course, in a, when you interpret your life always in personal terms, you think there's something maybe wrong with you. You know, that why, why can't you seem to have all the, the fun that everyone else is having? And it wasn't that I wasn't having fun, but I couldn't see the point in it, you know, for living a life, continuing life, just seeking pleasure. It was not, you know, not anything I really wanted to devote myself to for the rest of my life. And just trying to, in the worldly values of my own society, just trying to, you know, make money, become successful, the family life didn't appeal to me, the idea of getting married and having 
Uh, family was not an attractive option. And they didn't feel any attraction to any kind of profession or opportunities, and yet there were many available. It wasn't because of a lack, but a, a lack of interest. And so it was already, say, at that age, there was a kind of nipita or world weariness that at the time I felt, if I interpreted it on a personal, in personal terms, it would be like maybe they call it depression or something at this, you know, modern psychological term. Now in the, in the uh, monastic life, you know, like we all become quite interested in Buddha Dhamma. You can see it here in England where, you know, there's so many Buddhist groups, lay groups, Buddhist different traditions. People love Dhamma. They find that very, you know, you know, it's, it's intelligent. It's pleasing to the intellect. It's practical. It's all about letting go, not being attached, like liberation, freedom. But then when we put ourselves in the form of a mendicant, then we have the vinaya also. So, and vinaya is all about form, about boundary, about relationship. Isn't it? It's about convention. It's not about you know, it's very, it almost seems total opposite of Dhamma. So you become a, a bhikkhu and then you find yourself, you know, with all these rules and which are, you know, some seem rather, you know, pointless when you, when you first start uh, training. Because if you you know, cultural conditioning was, was not about rules and obeying rules and living within limitations, about freedom, about equality and rights and expressing yourself and proving yourself and being somebody and doing things, getting things done. This is the American dream, isn't really becoming somebody. The personality, your ego becomes foremost in your life. my importance, my rights, my opinion, my view should be respected and and this kind of thing. So it, the sense of self and and idealism were very much a cultural pattern, background of, of cultural conditioning. And then in monastic life, find myself in, in uh, Northeast Thailand, Wat Ba Pung Lumpur Charles Monastery, is all about duties, relationship through duty, not through rights. It's about relating in a very traditional way, living within boundaries and, and developing sense of, of, uh, you know, limitation. Of not just doing whatever you feel like or, or trying to compete with others or, or that, but to live within the boundaries of the, of this structure, conventional structure, traditional structure. So, years ago, and, and uh, I remember I was walking, Tham Sang Pet, this, my favorite monastery in those days was, uh, Wapapong became so uh, busy, 
so many monks there that I used to like to go off to these very remote places. So in north of Uborn, it, it was still part of Uborn province at the time, so I'm not to learn. Was a, a kind of a, still within the Uborn uh, provincial boundary. Now it's separate province. Man did. I remember going there and uh, this kind of beautiful, kind of hilly uh, caves and rocks, and that appealed to me. And so Ajahn Chah one time came up to see me, and we're walking. At Tam Sang Pat, and he was saying, uh, Sumato, you must get confused because, uh, you know, Dhamma is all about letting go and Vinaya is all about clinging. And so I said, Well, it is, I do find it a bit confusing. Because <laughs> I like the letting go part. <laughs> My, you know, learning to, after you've been living, uh, uh, profligate life of hedonism in Berkeley for years, and then you find yourself within a within a very restricted, uh, um, very strict Vinaya monastery in northeast Thailand, does bring up strong feelings. You know, because you're you're not used to being contained within structures. You know, I was uh, my my nature as a young youth was to rebel against them. To rebel against limitation, structure, society. But intuitively there was this sense of this is exactly what I need. I needed to to learn how to to limit myself. Learn how to live within structure. And and then the tradition itself offered a, you know, it's an ancient tradition. So it had a, it's like had managed to survive 2,500 and more years. And so it's a, it's a tradition which means it, it's an agreed form or convention that somehow survived up to the present moment. So, and because of my high regard and love for the Buddha and also respect for the teacher Ajahn Chah, uh, you know, I was willing to to do this, to surrender to this form, with, live within this limit, limitation. But Ajahn Chah's teaching was all about look at your mind. So, you know, in Thai they say do jit. Do means to look at, observe your jitta, they call this uh, Pali word actually. In Thai, they shorten it to jit. But it's like, look at your jitta. And so this was Lungpo Chah's basic kind of fundamental teaching, essential teaching. So it didn't take me long to figure that one out. When you're, when you're learning, uh, having to learn another language, living within a totally different kind of social milieu than I'd ever experienced, uh, and, and in a very strict monastic form, which I'd never lived in before, so I could do that, even though I couldn't understand the most of what they were saying at that time. <laughs> I could watch my my jitta. So then this is, and then from this, this is looking at, at you know, how you're feeling. And of course, you know, the, I found the first first few years very frustrating and 
and it would bring up rebellious tendencies and fears and paranoia and all kinds of, of uh, kind of extreme emotional reactions. But the aim was to live within the structure, so I did. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't be allowed to stay there if I didn't live within the, the agreed structure that, that they offered. So I did, and then watched my, my mind. Well, the structure itself is based on morality, so it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not, you know, you're not in a kind of hopeless kind of conforming, uh, structure that binds you to, makes you do things that are immoral or wrong. Maybe you, you're, you do things you don't feel like doing or don't see the point of, but you're, they're not wrong or bad. So, and this, of course, is a, and then the structure of the summoner life is, is one of dependency on the goodness of others for basic requisites, the four requisites. So, we're in a, in a form which we, you know, voluntarily we ask, we have to ask three times to get into this form. And so it's, uh, it's like we have this opportunity to live within this structure to watch the mind, watch the jitta. And this watching then is not, you know, how, what I think is a, my personality, how I view it, my view and opinion about what the Buddha really taught, the importance of Dhamma, uh, you know, and, and criticizing, maybe I didn't agree with this or uh, you know, I did have opinions and views come up, plenty of them, because I you know, I'm, I'm, Americans, we're trained to be very opinionated. Part of our cultural attitude is always have an opinion about things even though you know nothing about them. So, you know, it's the thing, if you didn't have an opinion, you were a nobody. So, so I did have a lot of opinions coming out, but I began to observe them, opinions. And I, I you know, as you do uh, watch, observe the jitta, you have to let it go. You have to be the knower of it rather than, you're not suppressing it, you're not denying it, you're not taking sides with it, you're not criticizing, you're just observing. And this is what we mean by puto or putang ternangachami, refuge in the Buddha. Observing what? We observe Dhamma, the way it is. So the way it is, is whatever is going on in your mind, is it's changing. It's a Nietzsche. You know, so this is, that which is observing a Nietzsche, isn't the Nietzsche, isn't impermanent. So you begin to be able to discern. And it's not taking sides, and I'm against all conditioned phenomena. It's not like, it's not a, you know, not putting down the conditioned realm in any way, or, or judging it. It's observing it and discerning it. Conditioned realm, this vortex, this, these opinions, these feelings, these views, 
right, wrong, good, bad, pleasant, painful, whatever they might be. One thing, you, you know, you, to let them go means you, you're observing them for what they are. And of course that, you know, you're not trying, when you judge them and, and form opinions about them, then you're, you're, you're attaching to them. Maybe, you know, we tend to, many of us have tendencies towards suppressing things. Fear and pain and, and worry, anxiety, negativity, anger. We, we, you know, you, I was brought up in a, in a family where you learned how to suppress anger. We weren't supposed to be angry. And so, you know, you develop, when you're a child, you learn very quickly the uh, ways of uh, kind of avoiding it or suppressing it. But mindfulness isn't about suppressing, but observing. Because anger, greed, lust, confusion, emotional confusion, jealousy, envy, fear, anxiety, worry, all that, a whole lot of, of emotional uh, conditioning. We can observe it. It's something we can observe through, and that's what mindfulness is, knower of the Dhamma. All conditions are impermanent. So now we're seeing the anger and, and uh, our personal opinions, views, feelings, uh, fear and desire, sexual desire, the whole lot, in terms of what they are in the present. They are what they are, so it's not, there's no judgment there. So this kind of enigmatic way of reflecting, isn't it? They are what they are. It sounds like nonsense to somebody that's never, never meditated, because we tend to take sides. We think, oh, I shouldn't feel like that. How many of you do suffer guilt because uh, as a monk or a nun, you, you aren't always feeling the way that you would like to feel. Maybe you'd like to be a, a, a being full of loving kindness and compassion, and yet you're caught in anger and, and really ugly resentments and fears. And then, then you, and, and you think, uh, I shouldn't, shouldn't have these ugly fears and these nasty thoughts. So it becomes more than what it is, isn't it? You've made it into something, into self, into your problem, into something that's yours, that you want to get rid of. Because being an alms mendicant, we can idealize it to the point, where, you know, that we, we're, you know, we, we know what we should be. You know, the ideal of a, of a good monk, a good nun, is, is, you know, we hold up. That's what lay people expect us to be the ideals. You know, they get very disillusioned when we don't fit into their, what they were expecting us to be. When we might show, uh, something that isn't so good. But in the, in the, in the Sangha, for example, it, the point of it is not to try to, to, uh, manipulate the mind and to put on a, 
the, a charade, uh, put on a mask and try to pretend, but to observe. And that's what the three refuges in Buddha Dhamma Sangha is all about. It's, uh, it's not to, for becoming, but for reminding. Reminder. Bhutang Sarnangachami is my refuge. So that means mindfulness here and now, observing Dhamma and practicing uh, Sankang Sarnangachami. Now, this might sound simple enough, and it's easy to understand on a conceptual level, but to put it into practice is a, is a lifetime experience. I got the idea of the first year, got the insight, but, the, but then to, to practice accordingly has taken me a lifetime. So it really, you know, it really sticks. You know, you really, you know, because we have our karma to live with. So we have to live a life as a human individual on this planet and with the particular individual karma that that each one of us has, which has its very various uh, good and bad sides. It can be good, it can be bad, pleasant, painful karma, But we, that which knows the karma is not karma, is not personal. Is not my karma. It's, it's just knowing conditions change. They're in this relentless, incessant, inexorable changingness. And that's where patience is necessary. Patient forbearance is is a condition sine qua non for this lifestyle to be incredibly patient with yourself, with your, what's going on in your mind. Meaning, doesn't mean grin and bear it, kind of gritting your teeth and bearing with misery, but it's really willing to be patient with maybe a very annoying, unpleasant emotional states that you happen to be experienced that arisen in the present. And to know that, then we're, this is why the refuges are so, so useful. These are conventions, admittedly. You know, Pali tradition and so forth, it's a traditional form. It's words, it's convention, and in itself it's a Nietzsche Dukkha Nata. You know, it's still condition phenomena changing. But it's a tool to use. It's what we have in this tradition. It's a tool that that the Buddha, uh, out of his compassion, uh, created this tool for us to use at this time. And it's a very excellent tool if you use it properly. So it's how to use this tool. Like this retreat now, encouragement, is going to encourage you to use the tool for liberation. So it's, it's a practical tool. It's not, it's not like, you know, it's not like I have a 
finer tool than you have. Or that the monks have a more, a much better tool than the nuns have. Then we get back into the divisive tendencies of, of conditioned phenomena, of difference, of change. But Dhamma, it's all pointing at here and now, reality of now, the Vinaya, the precepts, the Anagarika precepts, all these things are tools of restraint, of letting go, boundaries agreed on, that then, when we agree on that, then, are, are, then after that, our main duty is to watch the mind. That's all we have to do. That's our practice. That's why we get the four requisites. Then we are worthy of those four requisites. which is, for those who don't know what they are, (laughs) robes, food, shelter, and medicine. Now, notice an alms mendicant is giving up rights, giving up self, the self views, relinquishing, letting go, putting down, And, and so within a society, we're, you know, we're, we're actually going against the whole, this whole stream of modern life. You know, because it's not part of our culture, say here in, in England. It's not a part of English culture. Alms mendicancy is not a part of this cultural expectation. It's completely kind of anathema. It's against the grain, against the flow of any Western country. But, as you can see here at Amravati, it does work, because, you know, I've lived in this country now nearly 34 years. As an alms mendicant, I never lived here. I never came, I was never in England as a lay person. I only know this country as a, as a Buddhist monk, as a mendicant monk. And so this, the, and the, the four requisites have been, been given in abundance in, in terms of the support within a society that has no cultural relationship or knowledge or foundation in alms mendicancy And so it's, uh, you know, it's always impressed me, a kind of a, m- a miracle when I look at this, this, uh, these past years in this country, the kind of uh, incredible support one gets in, in a country that's not Buddhist. Thailand, of course, you can take it for granted. And that's the danger in Thailand, is one can just expect it and take it for granted. And here now, we can take it for granted. You know, here and because we are so well supported, we can become 
you know, just think we deserve the four requisites. Or just think that, you know, they come to us and we don't have, we don't have to deal with it. We've got people working in the office to, to taking care of the money and all this and paying the electric bill and, and, uh, doing all the, paying off the bills that we acquire. <laughs> we have automobiles and drivers and all the rest. So we almost become like princes and princesses rather than all mannequins. <laughs> and so, and then we can take it for granted. You know, where's my driver? And... <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, we, this is where we have to remind ourselves that we're not princes or princesses. We're not priests. We're mendicants, summoners, depending on the good, goodness of, of the lay communities for the very necessities of survival. You know, those are necessities. Is uh, shelter, something to wear, something to eat, and uh, medicine for illness. But we don't have money. And some of you have your own private funds, I know, in the office. <laughs> your own little stashes and bank accounts, but... This I, I wholeheartedly recommend you let go of. It's, it's about, about being totally on the edge all the time. Well, this is for reflection, you know, to... to Get this sense of, of what we're doing, of letting, of this form, relationship of Dhamma to Vinaya. Now in the Buddha, before he died, you know, the, Ananda said, what do we do without our teacher once you've, you've passed on, oh Lord, what do we, we won't have a teacher anymore. And so, and then the Buddha says, I leave you the Dhamma Vinaya. So this is, this is what Vinaya is all about is restraint, uh, living within agreed structures of relationships based on seniority. It's about relationships in, not on personal, not be taking it personally. If I start thinking, well, I'm senior than all the rest of you, that's Sakya Ditti, isn't it? If I'm thinking, I'm you know, I'm the the head monk here. I'm really important, and uh, you're only an anagarika. What is that? I don't ever think those thoughts tell the truth. <laughs> but uh, if I did, that would be sakaditi, wouldn't it? You know, if I was attached to that kind of position of of I'm senior monk and you're only. A, a novice or something like this. Yet on a conventional level, that's the way it is. And the, you know, conventional is I'm senior and and you're junior. 
Now, how to see that in terms of non-personal, not being identified with the, with this perception of seniority or being junior, is to observe the mind, isn't it? Observe how it affects you. So in the facts, on the conventional level, I am senior and you're junior. <laughs> now it becomes sankhya only when I attach to that perception and use it, is to sustain my presence or to, to develop power and, and I develop maybe a kind of conceit and arrogance because, and a sense of pride. And then I wouldn't be a supatipano. I'd no longer really be taking refuge in sangha. I'd be taking refuge in ignorance. Contemplate this, you know, uh, this uh, <clears throat> how the ego can be very offended so easily. You know, how delicate we become sometimes in this community. Our feelings, we become too precious, too delicate, uh, you know, about everything. And we're, we're trying to be so perfect and fair and nice about everything. That sometimes, we, you know, when, when there is a, uh, something, you know, uh, a tsunami or an earthquake or something, we just fall apart. We just can't take it because when there's something that, that arouses any kind of emotion, we just lost in it. So, way to deal with it is to see everything as opportunity here and now. You know, to really, there's a pachubanantama, awareness here and now, Watching the, the, what's happening in your mind is like this. And so this is, this is, uh, this is developing the path. This is, this is the path itself. This is not about, you know, doing something now to develop the next stage in the future. This is very direct teaching, actually. But if you start thinking, I'm developing the path, or I'm not getting on the path, or I'm on the path, then it becomes Sakyaditi, which is the personality view, the ego. So it's not about me being on the path, but it's knowing the path, discerning the path is this. And in your life, then, as a mendicant, you keep having opportunities to develop this, cultivate this path. Because even in this life, monastic life, it has, as you all wear, uh, it has periods of great flourishing and then disillusionment. People, you know, get very inspired and then very averse, you know, and, and people leave. People we've become very fond of or attached to leave and disrobe and then we see people coming in very bright and eager and then they become disillusioned. And I've watched it for over 40 years now. <laughs> and so I remember, I remember uh, the second year that I was with Lung Pacha at Wat Lapong, 
Well, I guess, you know, the first year, the first pantha I had with, uh, at Wat Pong, uh, it was just, uh, you know, Wat Pong was still rather, you know, it was a remote monastery, it wasn't in the town, and uh, it had terrible roads, you know, they were unpaved, and then the rainy season, it's all, you know, just mud, solid mud, the roads were. And there were only about 22 bhikkhus at uh, that first vasa. And Wat Mapong, I found out later, was the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, you know, like the marine camp. It was a tough, in terms of the average Thai person, you know, this is really, it's really tough there, you know. Not like the other monasteries. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> and then I guess word got around that having a having a Farang monk, you know, was such a kind of totally unique event at that time. This is 1967. You know, this is they never had a Prafarang, a Western monk, an American at that. You know, so the people come from all villages around just to look at me. <laughs> Sometimes I, I go out on the porch of my cootie and there'd be all village people standing around waiting to catch a glimpse. You know, I felt like a monkey in a cage. <laughs> and this <laughs> because they, they never thought, you know, they'd never seen this kind of a remote part of Thailand too. So, but there was a, at this time, the Vietnam War, 1967, was raging. And, and they had this huge American Air Force base in Uborn, in the main town, the provincial capital, Uborn. And of course, you go into Uborn and the, you see all these uh, American airmen on motorcycles and there are all these bars, nightclubs, brothels, everything glitzy and lit up. And, uh, and, you know, and so their view of Americans at that time was from that. You know, they saw us all, you know, we're big and, uh, you know, if I fit that category, big and white. And then, uh, and then I was American. And so, uh, they, they didn't know why I would want to come to this this particularly tough monastery to live. I could have found an easier place to live in than, than Wat Bapong. But it did give a, a kind of, uh, you know, people were very impressed. So the next Vasa, the next Pansa, second Pansa, suddenly it doubled, the, the monastic community there doubled. So we had about 40 monks. And so, uh, I thought, well, that's wonderful, you know, more Ajahn Chah is beginning to be appreciated. And, and um, I don't know, you know, I don't want to take the credit for increasing the amount of monks, but it was a, a, a coincidence anyway. That's what happened. And so, anyway, this, uh, and then after the Vasa, you know, after the Vasa, then about half of those disrobed. 
And I remember sitting under Lung Po Chau's kuti with him and, and these, these uh, monks that were new, newly ordained, they came and they said they wanted to uh, take leave of the Sangha and become lay people. And so, and I found that depressing. You know, I thought, here's an opportunity beyond belief to train uh, for liberation. And these guys don't know what they're doing. You know, they come in and, and have a pansai at the toughest monastery in Thailand and think that they made enough merit maybe for this life. Anyway, I found it quite depressing. And then so I remember one evening sitting with Ajahn Chah under his kuti. And there uh, he, you know, one of the monks came and said, I want to take leave and disrobe. And so, so then Lung Po Chau said, uh, well, we can let them all go, Sumato. Let them all disrobe. And I thought, that's a strange thing to say. And then I thought, I really wouldn't mind that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Just me and Ajahn Chah would be very nice. <laughs> Have him all to myself. <laughs> so. But anyway, that was, uh, you know, in Thailand they have another problem, being part of a culture, isn't it? It can be seen as, because it is, a, you know, Buddhism is very much integrated into their culture, so they can, they have this faith in that, kind of in a cultural appreciation and conditioning, but sometimes they can't see the jewel they have in their midst. And so Lung Po Cha used to compare them to, he had me, me, uh, he had me memorize this child's rhyme. Gop Tao Nang Fao Dok Bua, which means that the old frog sitting, uh, on the lotus pad looking, looking at the beautiful lotus. And then the rest was about, a dragonfly coming from afar flies, flies in and sucks out the nectar. <laughs> and so he is implied, you know, the ties are like this, this old frog. And then the, like, I was thinking he's probably considering me like a dragonfly sailing right into the, into the center of the lotus and being able to taste the nectar, the sweetness of the Dhamma. And so this is this is one kind of experience that kind of was uh, also helped the Thai monks beginning to see what something you know that that it isn't just ceremonial custom or Thai custom or to make merit or some, sometimes in the more more kind of traditional attitudes or cultural uh, perceptions that one might have that actually there is something to this that this is not just uh, you know. A, part of Thai culture. This is a, a great, uh, like a real jewel that, that they have that they may not notice, like the old frog sitting on the lotus pad and maybe not even notice that how beautiful the lotus is. May not have actually have any sense of going in and tasting the nectar of it, but just sitting around looking at it, saying, isn't it pretty? And, and looking around for a dragonfly to eat. <laughs> Mm. 
But our problem is that, that you know, being Westerners, we're not having Buddhism as a foundation, cultural foundation, is to idealize it. Like all the problems in the song of the, part of the previous year, this year, you know, the disillusionment, things like this. People, lay people, lose that. You know, they, they, you know, they, they, they like the Dhamma side of it. They want us to be perfect, kind of exemplary practitioners of Dhamma, but they don't understand Vinaya. I don't know how many lay people have a clue of the value of Vinaya. You know what it's all about. Well, because the Buddha did say that it is, uh, it leaves Dhamma and Vinaya, and then this is, uh, and, and I remember one time one Western monk came to me and he said, you know, the Buddha, he was brilliant with Dhamma, but around Vinaya, that was a total failure. He was, he was a terrible rule maker. And of course, this monk didn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, but it's easy to judge the Vinaya, uh, you know, from a Western mindset, you know, from cultural biases and, and ideals. And so in this retreat, really, you know, it's not that, you know, sometimes we can't help it. We do have cultural biases and conceits from our own cultural conditioning. And what this does, this, the Samana life really is a, you know, if used properly, we can get to the source of this, of all the conditioning that any of us ever had, down to the very essence of Dhamma, pure, unmitigated reality, before any condition, you know, that's not distorted or influenced by conditioning. And that's what I'm trying to encourage you to do, you know, I can't make you do it. I can't, you know, something one can't force on anyone else. But the occasion, the opportunity is all here. It's all here and now, in fact. And uh, this is a, a time for this kind of reflectiveness to observe. To develop a confidence in being this observer. Because you can't, you know, the ego will immediately try to grasp it and say something, oh, I'm very mindful, I'm not very mindful. But um, you can't trust your ego, the, the personality. Don't trust it. But observe it. You know, it is the way it is. So we have personalities, maybe sometimes they're very pleasant, sometimes they're not. Emotions. I was telling Ajahn Tanutaro this evening, uh, telling him one of the great joys of my life after all these years in my old age is reflecting on all the nasty thoughts that I've never said to anyone. <laughs> But observed. 
So it's like, I, you know, I don't have, I only have benevolent and beatific thoughts and emotions. But there's an increasing confidence and strength in knowing them. Not judging them or saying anything about them, but recognize they are, they arise and they cease, every one of them. So this is uh, this is a very good opportunity, and then my reflections on morning will be um, encouragements. They're meant to be anyway, you know, because we do we do need encouragement. It's not about me teaching you something, or you know, I don't want to I don't want to relate to you in that way of me teaching you dhamma, but it's about encouraging you because the the biggest problem any of us have really is to trust this awareness and to cultivate it and to really appreciate it and value it, to recognize it. It's recognizable. You can't find it as an object, but you can recognize when, it's, when there's mindfulness. It's this. Pure presence here and now. It's not an object that you can find, but you can recognize when there's awareness and when there isn't. Like when I'm caught up in my personal feelings, views, opinions, fears and desires, I, I, I don't have, I'm not mindful, I'm caught into that realm and the Ajahn Sumato kind of uh, habits and feelings and Vipaka Kama, my resultant karma of my life arises but then that always takes me to dukkha as a result. Every time. So then the, the cultivating this mindfulness is the beginning to discern. Non-attachment is like this. Attachment, you have to recognize attachment. So if you're an, a one who's attached to a lot of things, really attached to it quite intentionally to feel it. Being attached to a view, to an opinion, to an emotion is like this. You know, don't just kind of push it away and try to become unattached because it ends up as repression. What I used to do is really attach, you know, quite intentionally to just feel the pain of being a separate personality and say, this is attachment, this is sakyaditi. It's like this. And then this, this sense of letting go is, more, is not suppressing it or denying it, but just letting it be. So you're re relaxed, kind of what you say, embracing or allowing it to be, being patient with it, no matter how unpleasant or irritating it might be. Bearing, and, and and then if you really learn how to bear with the unpleasant, the painful, you can uh, you can discern its cessation. You know 
cessation. Third noble truth. It's a profound insight. You see, the unawakened individual never sees cessation. Because every time anything goes in that direction, they get reborn again. It's like this. now, these days, modern life is, is the stress syndrome. It's all about becoming, becoming. And so it's, you know, there's a lot of pressure on, uh, in becoming in the society that we're living in. So it, it's, uh, it's the social milieu that we, we live in and it affects us here at Amrabati. You know, it, it can't help it because we're, we're part of this, of this society. But our relationship to it is no longer, you know, is to use it for our reflection. We don't have to run away from this society and, and reject it, but you know the encouragement is to observe how how it affects. It's like this: this sense of I have to get something I don't have yet. I've got to get rid of these bad habits. I've got to do something. I've got to. I, I haven't. I haven't gotten anything yet. I've been practicing, and I still don't feel I've really gotten anywhere. I don't, I don't have the jhanas. I don't have the stages. I just. I've been doing, practicing 20 years and I don't know where I'm at. I've been wasting my life. I hear this from people, from, from lay people, how they've wasted their life. You know, they get older. They, they haven't got what they wanted, what they were expecting. And that's what the Samana thing is. But don't expect to get anything from it. It's not about being rewarded in getting anything. It's about relinquishing. It's letting go, relinquishing. Putting down. And it's like relaxing. It's not denying or getting rid of it. It's like a sigh of relief just to let go of the world and not carry it around on your back. Because it's very heavy and very burdensome. So, uh, tomorrow is the actual new moon day, and so uh, we, we'll have the meditation at five, and then in the morning, because uh, we have to, monks have to do their patimoka and the siddhadars have to do their uh, vinaya recitation. So, in the morning, there won't be any scheduled. Uh, events in the temple. So uh, your practice on your own. Because every fortnight this is our custom to recite these, our Vinaya. And then uh, in the afternoon commence as, as the schedule uh, describes. And also, this is a time to look inward. So, you know, this uh, sense of noble silence is encouraged to refrain from just seeking distractions, chit-chat, talk, gossip, distracting yourself. Really make determination, you know, just look at what's going on inside like this. Be patient. These kind of words are kind of encouragements. They're not 
imperatives, they're encouragements to, to kind of help you to, to trust yourself more to observe. Be the knowing rather than try to become someone, a good meditator or get somewhere in your practice. See through all that rubbish, you know, that we create around me and my practice. And then this trusting isn't in, isn't sakyaditi. It's sasanta, you know, because it's a, a wisdom path. It's not about, I'm really, you know, it's not about claiming I'm a mindful, really mindful, or I'm better than I used to be, but it, it's about observing, recognizing, and trusting. From insight, your own insight, not what I say, but in your own you know, recognizing. This is here and now. It's not something you lack or don't have. It's not recognized. Not appreciated. Because like our personal appreciation tends to go outward towards things out there. We want to feel appreciated and loved and that we make us feel good as personalities or be respected or be, you know, you know, admired or to be able to, you know, to speak well or whatever, you know, then the ego starts developing. But this is, uh, you know, mindfulness is not about becoming, but about here and now, which is not about becoming anything, we're just letting go. Then in, in relating to each other, it's the form, the structure of Vinaya. And then this, this sense of noble silence, it's noble, which isn't, you know, sometimes, as you've heard me say, it can be, you know, a, a kind of tyrannical silence. It's shut up and don't bother me kind of command. And that is not noble, is it? It's not noble to go around and shut up because you're talking too much and disturbing my samadhi. It's, uh, it's full of sakyaditi and desire. But it's noble, the sense of, of taking responsibility for your speech and not trying to, to kind of spend your time uh, socializing uh, and so forth that we, we might tend to do otherwise. And so, in it, really supporting each other in this practice. You know, not to draw each other out in, in meaningless conversations. But then, also, you know, when there is something to talk about, we can do it. It's not dumb silence. It's not tyrannical silence. And so, what does this word noble mean to you? You know, this is a beautiful word in English. Noble silence. It's, I'm taking responsibility for my speech. There's something noble in that gesture, isn't it? Even if you don't take responsibility for your speech, you know, I'm not going to go around, to, you know, I might feel annoyed, irritated, or even angry with you, but I, that's something to observe, not speak from. But so, you know, if somebody else wants to gossip and say something, then, you know, we, we say, shh, don't you talk to me, I'm a noble silence. But it's noble silence. 
And this is, you know, so to me, that, that's what I call noble. I'm, I'm responsible for my speech now. I'm not blaming anyone else for it. And so then that, that means that, that it, there's something admirable in that. In, in, I'm not expecting you to keep silent. I'm, I'm taking responsibility for my speech and this, this attitude of noble silence. So it's not a, a kind of command or an imperative or a tyrannical, you know, you better shut up or else. It's, it's, it's an individual sense of rising up, an individual sense of taking on the responsibility for my ability to speak and talk and socialize and chit-chat and, and whatever. But then when there is a need for speaking and talking, that's, you know, you know, this is where panya is necessary, to know when it is appropriate and when it's not. This is intuitive, when it is appropriate to talk and when it's not. And this is an intuitive, you know, knowledge, so you're, you're knowing it from the situation at the moment, not from a prescription about rules about silence. It's about recognizing the, the time, the place, the situation, people you're with. So anyway, I uh, wish you all uh, the best for this retreat. And... Uh, Attitude then is not, uh, you know, get in there and get your samadhi, but, you know, this sense of kind of relaxed attention, openness, reflectiveness, observing. Whatever's going on in your mind. Doubt, despair, disillusionment, disappointment, aversion, greed, sexual desire, whatever. Confusion, they're all part of the path, you know, they're, they're teaching us, they're teachers. They're te- what does confusion teach me? It teaches me all about confusion. Because I can observe when I'm feeling confused. And then I know I'm confused, I feel I'm confused. And then there's a knowing of confusion. And so then you see confusion as a teacher rather than as some personal problem you're trying to get rid of. Or anger, or jealousy, or fear, or whatever emotion might be. Boredom, uh, despair, disillusionment. All of it is path knowledge if you're willing to, to see it from this Bhutto position of being the knowing itself, aware of the object the the physical body and its pleasure pain neutral sensations the emotional habits you have that arise and cease the the strong views opinions uh, just kind of boring emotions like <clears throat> well not just boredom and and uh, you know this can be boring and restlessness and it's kind of a general anxiety or worry or not knowing what who you are, what to do. It's like this. 
You know, so everything is grist for the mill. You know, it's all good stuff to learn from. And then an encouragement is to trust in this knowing. It is the way it is. And then to see it, see every present moment is opportunity, is occasion for seeing clearly the way of, of non-suffering. So I offer this.